Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Calcio Podcast. This is a podcast devoted to Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you, as always, for listening. On today's episode, we're going to provide the latest news around Napoli and Serie A, as well as recap the first round of Serie B. In part 2, we'll review Napoli's win on Sunday against Genoa, and in part 3, we'll recap the rest of the action from match day 2. Starting with Napoli, both Lorenzo Insigne and Costas Manolas left Sunday's game against Genoa due to injury. Insigne's injury appeared to be serious on the field, he was in a lot of pain and was visibly upset. His agent, Vincenzo Pizzacane, gave an update to Radio Punto Nuovo. He said Insigne suffered an injury to his left thigh adductor and at the time they needed 48 hours to assess the extent of the injury. On Tuesday, Napoli issued a press release confirming that Insigne has a first degree injury to the left hamstring which means it's a mild injury and the expectation is that he will miss at least 3 weeks. That is why Insigne was so upset because he knew right away that he will miss both the Juventus match on Sunday and Italy's UEFA Nations League matches against Poland and the Netherlands on October 11th and 14th respectively. Kostas Manolas was replaced by Nikola Maksimovic at the half with lower back pain. Around the 35 minute mark Manolas fouled Mattia Destro around midfield and you actually see him grab his back. Fortunately it sounds like Manolas' injury is not serious. Before the match, Genoa announced that Mattia Perin and Lassie Shona did not travel with the club after they tested positive for COVID-19. On Monday, Genoa announced that an additional 12 players and staff tested positive. The speculation is that 9 of those 12 people were players, though that has not been confirmed officially, nor do we know which players and therefore how many actually played in the match. Massimo Galli, who's the director of the Infectious Disease Department at Sacco Hospital in Milan, spoke to Sky Sport about the incident. I'm no expert on these things, but as far as I can gather, all of these players and staff were asymptomatic, so they were given a secretion test, which I believe is on the saliva, that delivers quicker results. The virus is more difficult to detect in secretion tests, which is why they came back negative. Now, as far as I understand it, they're also supposed to do a swab, but those results take a bit longer. You need a double negative test to play. Now, again, I'm not an expert on these things, but it sounds like they only had one negative result, but because they were asymptomatic, they were allowed to play. 
After learning this, I can't for the life of me understand how this match was allowed to proceed. The team doctors must have known that they wouldn't have the results of the second test until after the match was played, and therefore they took a massive risk by playing. Galley added that even though there is contact in the match, it is unlikely that there would be a transmission, at least not at a high frequency. This has raised some doubt about whether Genoa's upcoming match against Torino and Napoli's upcoming match against Juventus will be played. Just like with Genoa, Napoli will have two tests. The first one was done on Tuesday, and the results are expected to be back on Wednesday, and the second test will be done on Friday with the results expected to be back on Saturday. On a more positive note, the club did confirm this morning that President De Laurentiis has had two negative tests and therefore he is COVID-free. In transfer news, Manchester City have signed Ruben Diaz in a swap with Benfica for Nicolas Otamendi. That means they are out of the race for Kaladu Koulibaly. According to Il Corriere de los Sport, PSG reportedly offered 40 million euros for Koulibaly, which is borderline insulting, and of course that offer was rejected immediately. Cristiano Juntoli spoke to Sky Sport ahead of the Genoa match. When he was asked about Koulibaly, he said, I think he stays. He still has a three-year contract. I think he stays. Sky Sport are also reporting that West Ham are now interested in Nikola Maksimovic, whose contract expires in 2021. Now, with Manolas leaving the match on Sunday, I wonder if that changes Napoli's position on the renewal. Probably not, though, as we still have Amir Rachmani waiting in the wings. And Maksimovic is also linked to Inter. Finally, our Napoli ladies kicked off their Coppa Italia on Sunday against La Città di Pontedera. Pontedera is currently dead last in Serie B. They've only played two matches, but in those matches they have a goal differential of minus 10. Napoli won this match 1-0 on a late goal by Zubida El Bastali, who headed in the Ana Martinez corner kick. That was an important win for Napoli, as the other team in Group G is Sassuolo, who defeated Napoli 3-1 in their Serie A match on September 5th. Moving on to Serie A, the CEO of Lega Serie A, Luigi De Siervo, spoke to Radio Uno, where he confirmed that the Technical and Scientific Committee of the Federal Government has rejected the league's proposal to increase attendance of football stadiums to 25%. However, he is optimistic that Serie A will gradually get to that point. He cited the Super Cup match between Bayern Munich and Sevilla, which hosted 16,000 fans and was well-managed. In other news, the next meeting of the presidents to vote on broadcasting rights is scheduled for Friday the 9th of October. On Monday, the leaders of the three biggest clubs had their own summit to align on a position. Juventus were represented by Andrea Agnelli and his financial manager Stefano Bertola. Milan were represented by chairman Paolo Scaroni and CEO Ivan Gazidis. And Inter were represented by Steven Zhang and one of their CEOs, Alessandro Antonello. The reports are that they aligned on the consortium of CVC, Advent, and FSI, who bid 1.625 billion euros to own 10% of Lega Serie's media company. We'll close the news with a quick roundup of match day one of Serie B, which commenced its 2020-2021 campaign on Friday. The first match of the week was newly promoted Monza, owned by Silvio Berlusconi, against newly relegated Spal. That one finished in a nil-nil draw. There were seven matches on Saturday, five of which resulted in draws. Brescia drew Ascoli 1-1, Cosenza drew Antella 0-0, Lecce drew Pordenone 0-0, Pescara drew Kevo 0-0, and Salernitana drew Regina 1-1, and Jeremy Menes scored for Regina in that one. In the other matches on Saturday, Empoli beat Frosinone 2-0, and Venezia beat Vicenza 1-0. The final two matches were played on Sunday, Cittadella beat Cremonese 2-0, and newly promoted Rajana drew Pisa 2-2. That will do for the news. In part two, we'll review Napoli's win over Genoa.
Porte gazuna con usted marreta. Na cupulella che vi si era aizzata. Passa scampanianna pattuleta. Con mano a papata fa guarda. Tu vuoi fare l'americano, americano, americano. Sienta a me chi tu fa fa. Tu vuoi vivere alla moda, ma se bevi whisky e soda, poi siente disturbato. Tu a ballo rock e roll, tu gioca a pesa bolla, vei sorta beccamella, chi te li dà la borsetta di mamma tua fa l'americano, americano, americano. Ma si nati in Italia, sienta a me non c'è sta niente a fare. Ok, Napolitan, tu vuoi fare l'American, tu vuoi fare l'American. Napoli played Genoa on Sunday, and here's how it went. We have kickoff, and it is Genoa who get the game underway, playing in the... Zielinski uh, back out to Mertens, taking on Zappacosta. To the far post, Lozano! That ball is in, and I think it crossed the line initially as well. Great delivery by Mertens. Lozano at the far post, Napoli with the early lead. Insigne is holding the back of his leg. That does not look good for Lorenzo Insigne, the captain for Napoli. And as he tried to sprint back here, that's where he uh, pulled up. It's his hamstring. Yep. And he already signaled the cross to the bench immediately. Felt something go. And that's a, a knock for Gattuso and for Napoli. Hopefully nothing too serious, but... It's uh, at least a few weeks on the sidelines, month, I would say. He looks to be in some pain. A ball too deep. And that is the uh, halftime whistle by just one goal. And it's the home side, Napoli, who get the second half underway. Zielinski. Sprinting away from Larager. Inside nicely, that's a lovely flick, Zielinski! What a goal for Napoli! Now Mertens is through, Mertens! Goal number three. Aggression, well, they've just made another mistake. Mertens into the path of Lozano! It's four! And it's all far too easy for Napoli. Inside, here's Elmas, Elmas! It's five! Far, far too easy for Napoli. And even Elmas gets on the score sheet. Again, Napoli come forward. Politano now. And it's his first attempt on goal. And he scores as well. Fine finish from Politano. Goes straight for goal. Gulam, but uh, was always drifting up. That's the final whistle from the uh, referee. He ends it uh, early enough, at least for uh, the Genoa players. It's been an absolute rout uh, for Napoli. 6-0 it finishes. Napoli 6, Genoa 0. So as you heard, Napoli won this one 6-0 on goals from Lozano, who scored a brace, Zielinski, Mertens, Elmas, and Politano. As always, let's start with the lineups. Rolando Maran lined up in a 3-5-2. 
Mattia Perin was out with COVID, so Federico Marchetti started in goal. Andrea Maziello started over Christian Zapata at center back, with Davide Beraschi and Eduardo Goldaniga on either side of him. The middle three of the midfield were as expected, with Lucas Larraguer, Miha Zac, and Milan Badel starting. Davide Zapacosta moved over to the right wing back spot over Paolo Guilione, so that new signing Luca Pellegrini could start at left wing back. Up top, Maran added a little bit of pace with Marco Piaccia starting over Goran Pandev alongside Mattia Destro. For Napoli, Alex Meret started in goal, Kalidou Koulibaly and Kostas Manolas started at center back, and Giovanni Di Lorenzo started again at right back. Mario Rui still wasn't 100% fit, so Gattuso went back to El Cid Cusai at left back. Fabian Ruiz and Piotr Zielinski played in the double pivot. Up top, Lorenzo Insigne started on the left, and Chucky Lozano started on the right. I thought we'd see Matteo Politano start this one, but he did not. In the middle, Dries Mertens played in the number 10 spot behind Victor Osimhen. Okay, so let's talk about the match. I always find it more difficult to analyze a blowout because typically in a blowout win, everyone was pretty good, and in a blowout loss, everyone was pretty bad, but we'll do our best. Let's start with the formation. Ahead of the match, I did see the rumors that Gattuso was going to use the 4-2-3-1, but the sources were not terribly reliable ones, so I was still surprised to see it, but clearly it was effective. The form Napoli showed when Gattuso switched to the 4-2-3-1 against Parma basically continued into this match. Once again, Victor Osimhen influenced the match even though he did not score. His presence alone creates so much space for everyone else, and it seems like Dries Mertens will be the main benefactor this season. I think any team that defends with a three-man backline is really going to struggle with this attack. If the center backs come out to the wings, then they're outnumbered in the middle. If they stay more central, then our wingers are free to cross the ball in. Osimhen was clearly the target in the middle and he did connect with a few, but he couldn't keep his headers down. They also have to deal with the run to the back post. Lozano did his best Callejon impression, both on the first goal and in tracking back to defend in his own end. Speaking of Lozano, he had another really good match. He was never meant to be a striker. We've mentioned this a few times on this podcast that he was successful at PSV playing on the wing. Besides the fact that Lozano had the summer to train under Gattuso, I think Lozano is also benefiting from the 4-2-3-1 because it involves the long ball a lot more. Whether Lozano is the target directly or playing off of Osimhen, his pace is much more useful in this formation. Lozano didn't get much playing time last season, and when he did, he struggled because Gattuso's preference in the 4-3-3 is to play out from the back. That approach involves short, quick passes, which is not Lozano's forte and does not take advantage of his pace. Gattuso spoke about Lozano after the match. He said he's a different player, he has strength in his legs, now when he kicks, he doesn't fall to the ground like kids do. He added that he had nothing against Lozano, he knew very well how he played at PSV. He systematically attacked the line. Last year he wasn't at the club, he's better from a mental and physical point of view this year. The best part of Lozano playing well is we address a gap without actually having to purchase another winger. What was really surprising to me, even more so than the formation itself, was that Fabian and Zelinski were used in the double pivot. I was definitely expecting to see Diego Deme occupy one of those two spots. That said, I thought Fabian was really excellent in this match, he controlled the midfield, I commented on halftime that Zielinski was invisible in the first half and then of course he scored a golazo right out of the break and he assisted on the Mertens goal. I was happy to see that though and you could see his teammates were really happy for him too. We know that Gattuso wants to see more goal scoring production out of both Fabian and Zielinski in particular. Even though it ended up working out, this was against a pretty weak Genoa side. I still have my reservations about those two playing in the double pivot against a stronger club. 
I'm going to give Gattuso the benefit of the doubt on this one though. While you respect all opponents, I'm sure he knew this was a weak Genoa squad and would probably have very little possession and very few legitimate scoring opportunities. I think we also need to give Gattuso a ton of credit here. I don't think there's a single manager in all of Serie A that is better than Gattuso at getting his players to focus. When Insigne went down with his thigh injury, the whole team morale seemed to drop and the attack slowed down. I don't know what Gattuso says during the break, but the team always seems to come out of the break more focused and more motivated. With our squad depth, I think we also benefit more than most clubs do with having 5 substitutions. Gattuso's halftime speech clearly worked in this match. We scored 5 times in the second half to win 6-0. I tweeted about this after the match. According to Transfer Market, this has happened 5 times in the history of the club. The last time was against Benevento in the 2017-18 season. We defeated Bologna 6-0 in the 15-16 season. The other 3 times were against Pescara in 1987, Verona in 1957, and Palermo in 1934. I'll close with Gattuso's post-match conference. You would think he'd be pretty happy with a 6-0 win, but he did have plenty to say. I like that Gattuso is humble. You'll never see him dancing on the field like Gasparini did against Milan, and he may crack the odd joke in his conferences, but he's usually pretty serious. He's always focused on improving Napoli's play, and even after winning 6-0, this conference was no exception. He said the score lied a little bit. If Zielinski doesn't score at the start of the second half and the score was still 1-0 after 7 or 8 minutes, he would have switched to the 4-3-3 because there was little balance in the squad. He also said that Napoli need to improve in both phases of the game. He noted that Napoli dropped into a 4-5-1 in the defensive phase and in the attacking phase they were closed down too easily so both phases need to improve. So that's our review of Napoli Genoa. In part 3 we'll recap the rest of match day two. four matches on Saturday involved a team that did not play on match day one, so let's start with Inter Fiorentina. This match was fraught with storylines and loaded with names. Conte used a 4-3-1-2 instead of his usual 3-5-2. We saw him do this after the restart to get Christian Eriksen into the starting 11. Even Perisic, who's not really a new face, and Alexander Kolarov started at the left mid and left back positions respectively. In typical Conte fashion, Ashley Young started on the right side over Inter's big signing Ashraf Hakimi. For Fiorentina, Cristiano Biraghi started at the left wing back spot against the team he played for last season. If that's not enough, a whole host of players, each with their own stories, came off the bench. For Inter, Hakimi made his debut in the 65th minute, replacing Ashley Young. Then in the 74th minute, Arturo Vidal replaced Marcelo Brozovic, and Raja Nengolan replaced Nicolo Barella. So for a few minutes, a 31-year-old Ivan Perisic, a 32-year-old Raja Nengolan, and a 33-year-old Arturo Vidal were all on at the same time. For Fiorentina, Borja Valero made an appearance against his former club when he replaced Giacomo Bonaventura in the 61st minute. Other than Lazio, it seemed that all three clubs playing in their first match of the season started out a little shaky and Inter was no exception. They looked disorganized at the back, their passing lacked accuracy, and of course they conceded that early goal. It was good to see Christian Kouame get a goal after he missed so many excellent chances against Torino, Credit to Inter though, they grew into the match and were back to their usual form about midway through the first half. Lautaro Martinez is also back in form. 
His form had dropped amidst the speculation that he was on his way to join Leo Messi at Barcelona, but since that deal fell apart and without the distraction, Lautaro has been very good again. Our friend and Interista Alex Dono said that he looked very good in Inter's friendlies and that has carried forward into this match. He won the penalty, though it was overturned by VAR, I think correctly, and of course he scored that beautiful goal just before the break, which was an important equalizer. For Fiorentina, Gaetano Castrovilli continued to demonstrate that he's deserving of the number 10 on his back. He scored the goal to level the score at 2 apiece, which started with a beautiful pass from Castrovilli himself with the outside of his boot to Ribéry. Ribéry did really well to hold the ball long enough to allow Castrovilli to join the attack before laying it off. Castrovilli took one touch to set up the shot and then he beat Handanovic. Federico Chiesa silenced all his haters in what was arguably his best performance. He scored the goal to put Fiorentina up 3-2. Once again, Frank Ribéry was involved. He played a gorgeous through ball to Keza on this one. The pass was perfectly timed and perfectly weighted for Keza to chip over Handanovic. But what I was most impressed with was Keza's play on the defensive end. Twice in the first 25 minutes, he tracked all the way back into his own box to make brilliant tackles. That's why I was surprised to see Beppe Iacchini replace him with Polirola. Now I get the logic of replacing a winger with a defender, but then Yakini also replaced Frank Ribéry with Patrick Cutrone. Yakini instead could have replaced Ribéry with Lirola and left Chiesa in. Yakini sat back a little too much and allowed Inter to come at them, and Inter just have too much talent even if they do have older players. And sure enough, they scored two late goals to scrape the win. The opening match of the week was a really entertaining one between Atalanta and Torino despite the terrible quality of the pitch. For Atalanta, it was their first match of the season after reaching the quarterfinals of the Champions League. Gasparini started both Duvan Zapata and Luis Muriel with Josip Ilicic on the bench. Neither of Atalanta's big summer transfers started either. In his pre-match conference, Gasparini said that Piccini and Miranchuk would not be ready until after the international break. That makes sense when you consider the intensity and complexity of Atalanta's style of play. To me, Torino looked far better in this match than they did against Fiorentina, especially in the opening quarter. That was helped by the fact that Atalanta seemed a little bit rusty having not played in a while. Simone Zaza came close to scoring after Toloi got caught out of position and Shutolo got beat but Zaza smashed the crossbar. But the quality of Atalanta is such that even when they're not at their best they can still do a lot of damage and that's exactly what they did on excellent strikes by Papu Gomez and Luis Muriel. Atalanta grew into the match and before you know it they added a third. In his 200th Serie A appearance, Papu played a perfect cross to Hans Hattabor at the far post and he volleyed in. Any remaining rust was gone by halftime. The second half was all Atalanta. Martin Darun scored the fourth to seal the win. Both Atalanta wingbacks had strong performances. Hattabor came close to scoring a second on a similar run to the back post, but his header narrowly missed the mark. And Gozin seemed involved in every attack in the first half. For Torino, I thought Andrea Bellotti was excellent. He scored the brace in the first half. He worked hard all match and I know he may go down easily sometimes, but he takes a ton of fouls and he probably should have been awarded a penalty in the 90th minute. Bellotti won the ball at the top of the box. Sportiello was going for the header, but because Bellotti got there first, Sportiello headed Bellotti instead of the ball. So Atalanta have picked up right where they left off, scoring four goals in the win. They'll be back in action midweek to play their match day one match against Lazio. Benevento played their first match this weekend as well as their first match against Inter was postponed because Inter reached the final of the Europa League. It was good to see Lorenzo Insigne's brother Roberto back up in Serie A and actually starting. It was also good to see Christian Maggio make his return even though he didn't play. 
Sampdoria jumped ahead 2-0 in the opening 18 minutes on goals by Fabio Cagliarella and Omar Colli. On the first goal, Benevento keeper Lorenzo Montipo played a wayward pass straight to Federico Bonazzoli, who squared to Cagliarella to tap in. But don't be fooled by one play, Montipo is an excellent keeper. He had the most clean sheets in all of Serie B last season. Antonio Candreva made a really nice play to assist on the second goal in his debut for Sampdoria. But anyone who watched this Benevento team in Serie B last year knows that they do not go down without a fight. Last season they came from behind on 5 different occasions to get either a draw or a win. In this match they stepped up their game after the second goal and were the better side from that point onward. Luca Caldirola cut the lead in half in the 33rd minute and equalized in the 72nd minute and Gaetano Letizia scored the winner in the 88th minute. Those are three massive points for Benevento against the Sampdoria side that they could be battling with to avoid relegation. Meanwhile, Sampdoria have lost both of their matches. Claudio Ranieri has now lost two champions from the 06 World Cup, first to Andrea Pirlo and now to Filippo Inzaghi. Hopefully that's a sign of things to come because Ranieri will square off against another 06 champion in Reno Gattuso on match day 11, assuming that Ranieri is still employed by then. The final match on Saturday was Lazio against Cagliari in Sardinia. Lazio won this match 2-0 on goals from Manuel Lazzari and Ciro Immobile. This was a good match, but compared to the other matches on Saturday, it wasn't terribly entertaining. This was a Lazio performance reminiscent of last season, at least pre-COVID. Other than a Giovanni Simeone chance early in the second half, which he really should have scored, Lazio were never really threatened. They were in complete control, and like last season, they looked very dangerous on the counterattack, especially on the right side with Lazzari. Adam Marusic had a really strong performance. He assisted on both goals. And we got to see Gonzalo Escalante off the bench, though he really didn't do that much. We won't really know what this Lazio side is for probably another month or so. They've been underwhelming in the transfer market thus far, but as I said in our season preview, I think they'll be the most active out of the top clubs in the final weeks. And then, after the international break, the schedule picks up with Champions League play in early November, so we'll see how Lazio manages that. Cagliari's performance was really underwhelming. They sat back a little too deep, which gave Lazio plenty of space to pass the ball. Lazio scored the opener in the 4th minute, so Cagliari had the entire match to get back into it, but they created next to nothing. I was not impressed with Cagliari in their first match either, and I think Eusebio Di Francesco is fortunate to have 1 point through 2 matches. Sassuolo dominated that match, but couldn't find the back of the goal more than once, while Cagliari had very few chances, and they converted theirs. Speaking of Sassuolo, they kicked off action on Sunday against Spezia. Before each match, there was a moment of silence to honor Serie B referee Daniela De Sanctis, whose wife was brutally murdered on the weekend. This was Spezia's first match in Serie A, but it didn't go too well. They lost 4-1. Filip Juricic scored the first goal for Sassuolo after a nutmeg on Jacopo Sala. Andrei Galabinov equalized with Spezia's first goal in Serie A. But in the second half, Domenico Berardi and Gregoire de Frel scored in the span of two minutes and Ciccio Caputo added the fourth. Spezia started the match a little shaky, especially at the back, but they settled in and they were holding their own in the first half. When Galabinov equalized, it looked like this might end up being a competitive match, but it all fell apart for Spezia in the second half. The usual suspects at Sassuolo stepped up again. Ciccio Caputo was heavily involved in the match. In addition to the goal that counted, he had three goals disallowed for offside after VAR reviews. That reminded me of the Sassuolo loss to Napoli last season, where Sassuolo had four goals ruled out. Caputo also assisted on the Defrel goal and won the penalty kick that Berardi converted. Manuel Locatelli continues to be an important part of the Sassuolo midfield. His ball distribution is key to their attack. He played the ball over the top that led to the penalty and he nearly scored in the first half. 
His free kick deflected off the head of Emmanuel Giazzi in the wall and hit the upright. Sassuolo look like they're going to be a fun team to watch again this season. Not only do they score in bunches, they also concede a lot of goals. Spezia only scored once in this match, but they had their chances. Galabinov nearly scored a second, but his header hit the bar. And late in the match, Consili spilled a rebound straight to Giazzi, but he skied his shot over the bar. Finally, twin brothers played against each other for a few minutes in this match. Matteo Ricci played the entire match for Spezia, and in the 87th minute, his brother Federico replaced Ciccio Caputo off the bench. Milan played Crotone at the same time that Napoli played Genoa. Milan won 2-0 on goals from Frank Kessie from the penalty spot and Brahim Diaz. Zlatan Ibrahimovic did not play in this match after contracting COVID-19. Brahim started in his place and actually looked really good. He scored his first goal in the Rossoneri. Brahim was paired with Antti Rebic up top. Rebic won the penalty on Milan's first goal. There was a question about whether Rebic handled the ball when he received the long ball just before he was fouled. It looked like a handball to me, but VAR reviewed the play and determined that Rebic did not handle the ball, so the penalty was given. Unfortunately, Rebic had to be taken out of the match in the 57th minute after suffering what appeared to be a pretty gruesome elbow injury. Fortunately, after the match, it was confirmed that he did not fracture his elbow. The latest is that it was a dislocation, and he will undergo further testing. Sandro Tonali also started his first match of the season. He was much better in this one than he was off the bench against Bologna. So Milan have started this season the same way they ended the last. They've collected the maximum of 6 points. Meanwhile, Crotone have lost both of their matches. Despite the loss, they did look much better in this match than they did in their opening match against Genoa, which they lost 4-1. Verona defeated Udinese 1-0 on a goal by Andrea Favilli, which was his first in Serie A. This was probably the least entertaining match of the week. This was Udinese's first match, as their match against Spezia was postponed because Spezia made it to the final of the Serie B promotion playoff. I actually thought Udinese were actually the better side in this match, but they just couldn't finish. In fact, that was a common theme of the match. Neither side took their chances. Udinese were a little bit unfortunate when Rodrigo Bacau hit the bar in the first half. As they mentioned on the broadcast, this was Verona's first win against Udinese at the Bentegodi in 18 years. So in the unlikeliest of ways... Verona have started the season with two wins after Roma were forced to forfeit their first match. The final match on Sunday was the marquee match of the week between Juventus and Roma. This one finished 2-2 on a brace from Jordan Bertu and a brace from Cristiano Ronaldo. For many, this was considered a better test of Juve's quality and Andrea Pirlo's quality as a manager than Sampdoria was. However, I think the jury is still out on that. Juve's play was definitely not as delightful to watch in this match as it was against Sampdoria, but they also managed to salvage a point by equalizing both down a goal and down a man. You have to wonder whether the result would have been the same had Rabiot not picked up that foolish second yellow. Alvaro Morata made his second debut for Juventus. I know it was his first game, at least with this particular group of players, but I couldn't help but think that this was the type of performance Chelsea fans loathed to see. Morata really did not do much to influence this match. It's way too early to judge, but the reason Pirlo wanted Zeko is because he's a big body that can hold up play for Ronaldo. That's not really Morata's game. At least physically, he's too similar to Ronaldo, and obviously he does not have the same quality. Neither Rabiot nor Weston McKennie played particularly well either. Rabiot obviously got the two yellows. The second one was completely unnecessary considering how the foul occurred and where it occurred on the pitch. The second yellow really cost Juventus a chance to collect 3 points. That said, even though they dropped points, Juventus are probably content with the result considering they were down 2-1 when they were shown the second yellow. 
Roma, on the other hand, have to be massively disappointed with the result. Obviously, they were in the opposite position, up a goal and a man, with about half an hour left to play. They allowed a 10-man Juve to equalize. Now, the cross from Danilo and the header from Ronaldo were both excellent, but Ronaldo was surrounded by four Roma players on that goal. Roma also had some scoring opportunities that they should have converted that could have changed the final result. Mkhitaryan made a brilliant run in the 12th minute to get clear, but the finish was disappointing. Then in the second half, Zeko had a chance that was essentially a penalty kick, but he hit the outside of the upright. Before this match, there was speculation that Paulo Fonseca could lose his job and that he seemed resigned to this fact in his pre-match conference. This result certainly doesn't help his cause, which is unfortunate because he really hasn't had a fair shake in my opinion. Last season, he had to deal with a number of injuries, including to key players in Zaniolo and Mkhitaryan, and he still managed a 5th place finish, not to mention all of the off-field distractions with the sale of the club. Finally, Parma played Bologna on Monday. Bologna won 4-2 on a brace by Roberto Soriano, the 3rd from Andreas Skovolsin, and a late 4th from Rodrigo Palacio. Hernani scored the lone goal for Parma. Gervinho returned to the lineup for Parma, and at least at the start of the match, you could see what a difference he makes for the Parma attack. He caused Napoli all kinds of problems last season, so we were fortunate he did not play against us. However, Parma faded quickly, and once Soriano scored his first, which was confirmed by the goal line technology, it just got worse and worse for Parma after that. Parma really struggled with Bologna's high press, and as we saw in this match, when Mihailovic's team is on, their attack can be lethal. They just need to figure out how to do that on a consistent basis. Aaron Hickey looked very good in his debut for Bologna. If you haven't seen the video Bologna posted to announce Hickey's arrival, do yourself a favor and check that one out. Trust me when I say you won't regret it. You can find it on Bologna's official Twitter page. So that completes our review of Match Day 2. That will also do it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with your friends and give us a 5-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. If you need to get a hold of us, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti 5, or you can find the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Pod. We'll be back later in the week to preview Napoli's next match against Juventus, which is a big one. But until then, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli sempre! Network.